Good day, and welcome back to the Cosmic Coffee Shop. How's it been? How's it going? Um, hopefully you guys have had a great week. And yeah, hope it's not too cold wherever you are. I know there's a lot of winter storms rolling, rolling around it's, at the moment. You know, earlier this week was pretty nice, actually. Like, it felt pretty good outside, but today... Oh my god! Oh yeah, it, uh, Dakota and I were, <laughs> were like, "Oh, let's go, let's go eat outside." This will- Charlie, no, I was like, Charlie, Charlie, I swear to God, Charlie, I swear to God, <laughs> if you're gonna be the studio buddy, you gotta be a studio buddy. It's like- our third host, Charlie, is in is here today. He's giving all of his perspectives. They're widely uh, observed as loud and annoying. A little Hold controversial, on, if you come ask here, me. Come here, come here, come here. Anyway, uh, (laughs) uh, Dakota and I were like, oh, we'll eat outside. It'll be great. Oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And the wind chill was so cold. It was uh, obscene. Um, We suffered through some bagels and made it out the other side somehow. God, for whatever reason, I thought it was a brilliant idea to get a smoothie. Um, (laughs) I was wrong. I was wrong. Incorrect. I tried to drink the smoothie. Uh, and it just, it hurt. It felt like ice shards A brain going freeze down in your whole body. Yeah, right. No, exactly. Exactly <laughs> the feeling. Yeah. Um, so that's been the weather update on the new segment of the show where we talk about the weather. Because we're both <laughs> so tired from school, we've lost conversational oh ability. God. I feel like an old person. Just like, you know, when the weather becomes a real topic of oh, conversation. Yes. The cold makes my bones hurt these days. That is not false. It does, in fact, make my bones hurt. (laughs) My bones are cold. You know, this scares me because right right now I'm 20 and I'm already feeling this. Like, oh, God, what is 30 going to feel like? Much less 40. We'll come back to this when you're 30 and I'm sure you'll have some strong insights. You know what? About the the, the state of things. I hope I'm still podcasting by then so we can come back. Oh, When I'm 30 and be like, look at this. Look what I said when I was a stupid idiot at 20. And and now how the cold (laughs) makes my bones hurt. My bones hurt even worse. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that my my boss says that I find to be the funniest is he he goes, uh, the floor was a lot closer when I was your age because we work in construction, so he'll, like, get down to pick something up, and he'll be like, oh, this floor is so far away. And, like, the concept that you're just, you've gotten so much taller with age mm-hmm. that the floor is so far away. It just makes me laugh. It's a good time. So, so Georgia, what did you learn this week? I don't have a, I mean, I, I could come up with a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I more want to, like, talk about the class that I've been taking that I'm, like, learning the most from. Um, which, if you if you live with me, you've already heard too much about this class and would like me to stop talking. But I'm taking a special topics class for my major called Animal Ethics, which I was really nervous to take because um, I, for health reasons, I can't be a vegetarian or a vegan. And I was like, well, this class is just going to make me sad. And... <laughs> Sometimes, yes. There's a lot of um, conversation in it about how we treat animals, what are the ethical stakes of our treatments of animals. Mm -hmm. Um, But today specifically we talked about like what the ethical stakes of categorizing animals are um, and what it means to, as the only animal with known written language um, as humans, what does it mean for us to put every other creature in a box, including ourselves? Um, And it was just like this cool day of getting to discuss a topic that I've literally never considered before. I've never sat down and been like, I don't know why we decided that dogs are more similar to cats than dolphins 
I've never thought about that. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, I've never thought about, like, what a cow thinks about. Did you know cows make friends and get sad when their friends aren't around? That's so good. I mean, I, you know, I knew that they were pretty intelligent because I I knew that they're kind of, like, close to dogs in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Cows are very intelligent and they make Mm -hmm. really close friendship bonds and they get really sad when their friends are not there. And I, like, I never thought about the fact that cows made friends because I've, like... I've always thought of, I knew that pigs were smart. And I was like, so pigs are the smart farm animal. All of them all are of them. intelligent. They're all of them are intelligent. Smart. I had no idea. And that makes it even worse that all the farm animals are also all of your breakfast animals. Culturally, in America, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, and I wrote a cool paper about the difference between um, like small meat farmers and large corporations that farm meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is huge. I highly recommend like researching it or if there's a local farm around you, um, calling them. I got to talk to um, the woman who runs Worley Farms, which is in oh, Canton, wow. That's awesome. um, about, yeah, about how they like raise their animals. And I was like, how many cows do you have? And she's like, I'll go count. And I was like, that's so cool that you can go count you how can, many cows exactly. you have. It's not like, uh, inhumane even. Like, mm-hmm. well, I mean, like, they're still there's, killing there's, the cows, right? But right. yes, <laughs> here's here's something that I heard once when I was uh, a bit younger. You know, so I was homeschooled, right? And I had a mm-hmm. lot of friends who were in 4-H. Uh, you ever you ever hear about 4-H? I was in 4-H, so yes, cool, I have cool, heard cool, about cool, 4-H. Cool. <laughs> but I knew I knew a lot of people that were like out there raising animals and stuff, like farm animals and stuff, and they just like raise them mm-hmm. up and then like give them back to the people where they would kill them and Mm -hmm. the way that one of their moms tried to explain it to me because when i was young i was like why the fuck would you do that like it's it's terrible you're they're gonna die i wouldn't let them take it back and then they were like well think of it this way we do this so we can give them like the best possible life and let them enjoy like every day of it and then when that day does come you know it's just one bad day out of like mm. a life of good ones. And I'm like, that's Yeah. I, I, nice I've heard that that conversation a lot. And I do think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I think that it it's like definitely a hard subject for me to think about because right. like if I could be a vegetarian, I would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really an option for me. Um the big difference that, that I was seeing was was reading about corporations was just how many animals yeah. are produced in the US every day of like so Worley Farms has maybe fifty cows on their farm at a time, um, 20 of which are full grown. Whereas uh, Tyson Foods, which is one of the biggest producers of meat, produces over 150,000 cows a week, a week, um, which is a huge number differential. Um, And I think it's interesting to talk about how much meat we eat, where we get it, Mm -hmm. the classifying terms that we get it. and if you're comfortable researching that kind of thing, like I encourage you to research it because it's cool to learn about. Yeah, but I absolutely. also want to be very clear on the point that eating local food is a huge privilege that is significantly more expensive. And if you're financially able to do that, I highly encourage you to. But if you're not, <laughs> that's not your fault. And I, I, I understand. Yeah. So it's no, definitely, sure. it was a cool thing to learn about. I, yeah, <laughs> that's when it. I'm, when I am able to, I would love to like start buying local and, you know, I, I'd love to be able to grocery shop at Ingles. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found, because I, I probably get, it's winter right now, so our farmer's market isn't super active. Um, but when it is, I get a lot of the food that I eat from the farmer's market. It is not as expensive as you think it is. 
Right. Like I, I, that, I know that doesn't sound super clear, yeah. but it's not. <laughs> not really. It's not as bad as you think it's going to be. Like you go right. and you're like, that chicken's gonna cost like twenty bucks, and maybe it's like a dollar or two more than what you would pay at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ends up having a higher level of nutritional benefits. Right. You know exactly where it came from, and you're supporting somebody's small business. Um, which, if you're ca- able to do that, like I think is a, is a really Absolutely. good thing to be able to do. Um, I'm, I'm excited for yeah. them to come back because I would love to go to that local farmers market. Oh yeah, it's, it's very fun, and the people are super nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm sure you're going to hear a lot more about animal ethics um, on this podcast and this intro because it's I'm taking it all semester. It's the most interesting class I've taken <laughs> um, in a long that that wasn't like I don't, it's it's the coolest discussion class I've taken in a, in a while. I'm having a blast, and yeah, go, go global- read go read something about animals. <laughs> what have you learned this week? My global issues ha- uh, class is kind of like that. Honestly, I'm having a great time with it, uh, but. That's not going to be my fact of the week, but it does kind of intertwine with yours in the way that we're talking about like living things in the animal kingdom. Um, So did you know that in and on your body, there are more living things than people on earth? I've heard this fact and it terrifies me. You know what's even worse though? It's not like just by a couple million or a couple billion. Uh, Mm -hmm. Most people have about 90 trillion living things like in and on them. Mm. And it is. Have you looked up the pictures? Have you looked at the pictures of little fellows that live in your eyelashes? Oh, yeah. And they are horrifying. And what's what's even crazier, though, is they're good for you. They're terrifying to look at. They make you want to shave all the skin off your body. But. They're they good are for good for you. They, they keep your eyes healthy, which mm-hmm. is like a, a really cool like element of symbiosis, but they are terrifying yeah. to look at. Well, that, I don't care for them. That's the thing with all of these things. Like when you're mm-hmm. healthy, you have a healthy microbiome, which is just like, it's like how we have biomes all around the world of different like environments for things to live in. You have mm-hmm. those inside of you. It's like mm-hmm. you have an entire planet in your body, which is a cool thought. Oh yeah! But if you so cool, if you took out all of these microscopic like bacteria and other living things and cells, uh, they would weigh about two to nine pounds of your body weight. That's what? right. Two to that nine is pounds. so much more than I would have estimated. Mm-hmm. That is insane. Yeah, it's like a lot of your weight is just other living things, which is such a cool wow. thing to think about. That is really crazy. Two mm-hmm. to nine pounds. That is that is a, a crazy number. Yeah. Um, uh, shout out to all of the two to nine pounds of living being on my person at this time. Um, <laughs> Yo, and what up, the, boys? You know, what's, you know what's crazy? My dog weighs six pounds. I could have several trillion living beings that weigh about the same as the dog that's mm-hmm. in my lap right now. Yeah. Isn't that crazy, Charlie? Isn't that crazy? He says, I do not care about this at all. I'm going to bite like, your I don't even understand. <laughs> Good talk. Here's yeah. all of my toys on the floor right now. <laughs> um, my dog's new thing is uh, when I'm, I, I got a rug and I put the rug on my floor. Um, if you're having any trouble with your mental health, get a rug, put it on your floor, lay on it every once in a while. It'll mm-hmm. help. I, I can't explain it. I'm just finding it to be very useful. No, that sounds uh, just, nice. just go lay on a rug every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Sit, sit on the floor for a bit. <laughs> um, but when I sit on the rug, my dog is like, ah, yes, it's the time of day where we will wrestle on the rug. You can hear him now. He's like, oh, here we are on the rug. And if I do not interact with him, he slowly brings me every toy he owns and just sets it there. And he's like... Uh, are we going to play on the rug now? 
Is this the time? I can hear you. I think he is playing on the rug now. (laughs) Yeah, he's brought me this dismal snail. It's missing one entire eye. Um, It's got a lot of threads. Yeah, it makes this noise. There's the ASMR of the day. Uh, There's a goat. It's just, oh, the goat's cool. I like the goat. The goat's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, This is his first toy that he ever got. It's not destroyed. It's like an orange dog. Um, yeah, but that's that's the, the rug update. Uh, podcasting from the rug with my dog who has Honestly, too many toys. There's a show there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just a show where I just sit on the floor and wait for my dog to do something weird because they will. Mm. Um, Speaking but, of shows, but yeah. we've got a good show lined up uh, this week. I'm very excited for our interview. Yes, we have our guest, who is my friend and philosophy and religion colleague, Matthew Miyagi210, and we're really, really excited to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was a, We've already recorded the episode, so we're yeah, going back at time. it. It's a great time. Um, but we had so much fun. It's a really cool conversation. And yeah, so Can't sit back, relax, and uh, join us in the coffee shop. See you soon. Welcome hey, back. welcome back to the show. Today we are here with my classmate and friend, Matthew Miyagi210, and we're really excited to uh, have you here today, Matthew. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this, although um, I do have to say that, you know, whenever you hear your own voice, you know, yeah, you kind of mm-hmm. get that feeling. So. I, I listen back to these, like, on the way home from work, and uh-huh. I just have to pretend it's someone else because I don't recognize myself, like, at all. It's the most terrifying part of the show. I remember the first episode was my interview, and I've listened back through it, and just it's <laughs> I cringe the whole time. Yeah. Oh it's my god. It's bizarre hearing like hearing your thoughts kind of reiterate back. It's it's like mm-hmm. almost like when you read through an essay or something you've written that is like your own personal thought. Yeah. And you yeah. go like, oh wow, I I like thought that, and that doesn't sound like something I would say. It kind of weirds you out, right? I, yeah, for me, it's like like you know what you, you knew what you were thinking when you were saying that, and like you you like cringe at how you delivered it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, absolutely. You yeah. know, yeah. for me, it's just uh, the sound of my own voice. Yeah, really just the grating sound the, of Dakota. Awful grating sound. <laughs> yeah, of Dakota. Everyone, voice. everyone listening, fifteen episodes in, like, yeah, yeah, it is, it is kind of great. <laughs> like, I think ah. your voice is wonderful, Dakota. All right, well, uh, let's let's get right into it. Let's let's hop yeah. on hop on the interview. Um, so Matthew, who are you? Who am I? Well, uh, my name is Matthew, as you've introduced me <laughs> already. Um, I am a student at Western Carolina University. I'm a third year and a double major in um, philosophy and political science with a minor in Japanese studies. Um, I'm originally oh, that's from... That's a wicked combination. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's it's sick. A... Yeah. Um, I, 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 love, I love learning, so like, I'm trying to take as mm-hmm. much, you know, mm-hmm. I guess, slots in. But yeah, I mean, I was born originally in um, Okinawa, Japan. And I lived there for like the first eight years of my life, and then I moved here to the states. So, um, yeah, that's I guess my like surface profile. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Oh, that's what awesome. was your experience moving from Okinawa to the U.S. like? When I lived in Okinawa, well, like my dad was like a like a U.S. military, and my mom was like a local, um, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, the indigenous indigenous woman. And um, I guess I kind of grew up. With both sides, I kind of was exposed to American culture pretty early on, even before moving to the United States. Because you know, whenever you go on base, um, mm-hmm. you know, you see it's it's funny because when you're when you're like in the Okinawa proper, it's like you know Japanese style or Japanese or Okinawan stores or restaurants and like style architecture. 
And when you go on base, you know, you see like Pizza Hut, <laughs> Walmart, <laughs> and stuff like that, McDonald's. Oh, wow, they got yeah. Walmart that has to be on such a base. strange. Yeah, it's not like a Walmart exactly. Yeah. It's called like a right. P. It's like a PX. It's basically a Walmart, but it's like a it's like a military like like it's like a military Walmart basically. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow, yeah. the cultural shift of like this little pocket of America. Yeah. Anywhere else has to be bizarre. Yeah, it is kind of. Do you feel like there's any kind of like pockets of other cultures that you can experience here or living in the southern mountains it's just kind of nothing oh absolutely yeah i mean i mean america like you know no matter where you move i feel like you'll always kind of you know you'll interact with communities you would never guess are in those areas you know Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so i guess like an example would be like a a lot of my friends are Hmong, like uh, the Hmong people and like there's um a good amount of them that go here to here to western and it's you know really amazing like kind of interacting with their culture and like learning about um their life and stuff like that and like you know you never would yeah. suspect that here in you know jackson county north carolina right so, yeah. it's literally the farthest place ever oh my god yeah, yeah. there's a, a really interesting amount of, of cultural diversity that i've gotten to interact mm. with in college which like i live close to charlotte and so back home i live close to charlotte so i would have assumed that i would have interacted with a lot more walks of life mm-hmm. um but it was kind of just like a lot of people that were exactly like me and whenever you come to college because there's so many people going right. to one place yeah. you meet a lot more viewpoints than you'd expect yeah absolutely that's who you are on like the surface level all like the checklist of things that like you would describe yourself as a little bit deeper yeah and so like who are you in essence like what makes you matthew you yeah the the wretched question right who who are you <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Uh, <laughs> what makes you human himself? i feel like i don't know i feel, I feel like a, a lot of philosophy is uh like I, i'm influenced a lot by nietzsche who i see is like my first love in philosophy mm-hmm. you know he says like mm-hmm. philosophy has been used to actually really like hide people's true selves rather than to <laughs> reveal it you know Absolutely. Um, so i mean I, I don't really believe in an essence i guess i think everything is constantly changing you know people included and um mm-hmm. you know, that's a heavily kind of buddhist buddhistic concept too that there is no you know internal essence so i think i you know yeah so like you know i always tell people i'm different who i'm, I'm a different person today than what i was yesterday or who i will be tomorrow right mm, um wow. and i think i think what kind of i guess like the permanence that remains across time i think is just what you choose it to be <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so kind of like the existentialist Absolutely. kind of like the existentialist you know you kind of decide you know decide who you are have yeah. you observed any constants in your life that have kind of transcended that lack of permanence in who we are yeah i think i'd say like um excuse me probably like my curiosity like i've always been very mm-hmm. uh curious ever since i was a child mm-hmm. and uh that's of course it started off with dinosaurs and cars and now it's you know it's now like yeah now it's like car- it's Karl Marx and yeah. Matthew, yeah. what do you find you're the most curious about like right now? Right now, I I I tell people I'm very kind of I my interests are all over the place like you know, mm-hmm. I one day I'll read, you know, something about like you know, just a normal philosophy book. Another day I'll read economics, physics, you know, what I it just <laughs> I just kind yeah. of all economics is yeah. the bane of my learning existence. Yeah, it Every is it I is for me too. Text, yeah. I just go crazy. <laughs> but yeah, it is for me too. I feel like it's kind of necessary when, you know, mm-hmm. I guess doing. I'm all you know. My other science is political, or my other major is political science. So, mm-hmm. I kind of. How do you find political science and philosophy and religion tend to intersect? 
I know there are pretty yeah. different people groups in both of those majors. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing with philosophy is like, I'm not trying to sound like like elitist, but I think like philosophy is kind of like the like like the mother of all disciplines, because you know mm-hmm. all you know all the sciences and all the social sciences you know had their origins like a philosopher or two, you know. So like sociology mm-hmm. was certainly Emil Durkheim and Karl Marx and physics came from Isaac Newton. These are very like philosophically um, minded people, Absolutely. and I feel. Yeah, and I, th- I think, at least for me, I'm not saying this is, like, universally true, but I think I try to kind of see the practical elements of philosophy. Um, mm. Growing up, you know, biracial, growing up in two very different worlds that are right next to each other, you know, I've, I've always kind of had that sense of, like, what's right? You know, what is this? What is that? Um, why does my father speak English? Why does my, you know, um, mother's side speak Japanese or Okinawan? So, mm. um yeah, I think yeah. it started with that. <laughs> Dude, yeah. that's yeah. incredible. Honestly, yeah. like, hmm. so we, we actually, that's one of the big questions on our show is we talk about childhood and like, what hmm. was, what was a big formative memory for you in childhood? <laughs> I mean, like, like I, I had a good, I had good parents, I had a good childhood and stuff, but we, we've, we've had our fair share of struggles and stuff. Um, Like, uh. He's doing fine now. Like, yeah, I, I love him to death, and he's a great father. He's always has been, but he struggled. My father struggled with alcoholism a lot um, mm-hmm. as a child um, due to his own kind of circumstances and being in the military and kind of being away for a long time. Also, just a lot of things he had to work out in his own childhood. And, you know, it, it, it kind of got to a point where, uh, like, m- me and my mother my little sister would have to, like, leave the house, like, in the middle of the night. Like, at least, like, you know, in the worst of it, it'd be, like, once a week you know oh. so i, I kind of grew up with that uh exposure to like how vulnerable people can be um because i feel like a lot of people i mean I, maybe not that many people but i feel like a good amount of people kind of grow up with parents and you know see them as kind of these stable people mm-hmm. right but i didn't really i never kind of saw my parents that way um yeah. mm-hmm. in that respect i suppose but again like they're they're good parents they've always been yeah. they've always looked out for me so yeah. absolutely I think it's hard for us to, like, understand what it is to struggle as an adult when you're a kid because you want that, like, really solid force. Yeah. But definitely, like, in my first few years of adulthood, it's become so clear to me that it's impossible to, at any stage of adulthood, be like, oh, yeah, this is going fine, and I've got it totally figured out, and I'm a perfectly stable person. Right. And I think some parents are able to shield that from their kids entirely, but Mm -hmm. not every situation is like that. Yeah. And that, that's, I think that's, that's, I think that's the thing with my mother is that she, she's, she, you know, she's a great woman. She's, she's a very, she's probably the strongest person I know. And that, you know, she always tried to shield me and my little sister from like a lot of the, a lot of the, I guess the realities of life. Um, sometimes it could be excessive. I feel like, um, because you know, you, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta know what's out there, <laughs> you know? Right. So like, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> that's, that's an important point. Actually. I yeah. knew a lot of people growing up who were like very sheltered mm-hmm. to the point where like they didn't understand how the real world worked at all and like getting to college was just a shock for them yeah yeah there's there's a lot of culture shock and learning that the world is not so perfect yeah honestly especially here a lot of people just don't see that um yeah mm-hmm. yeah so and I, it, I especially i especially feel for uh like college freshmen in this like today <sighs> Yeah, who are, who are learning how to be adults right now? God, and like figure out their own lives right now. How to do your laundry? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Learning how, how to, to be do adults. your laundry. The world is on fire. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. like yeah, the world's on fire, but you still gotta do it. But but yeah, like like uh, Matthew, what you're talking about with the trying to to shield people from the world, I, I can't imagine the 
the impact that that has mm-hmm. both as the shielded and the shielder is a lot of yeah a lot of energy put into that yeah and like um, yeah my, my you know my mom like she, like i said she's probably one of the strongest women or not women but people i've known in my entire life and when we first moved to this country like my dad and my mom got divorced and my dad had to kind of mm. um be away for a while to kind of heal and uh we know when we moved here, it was, it was right after the 2008 financial crash. Like as soon as we, uh, <laughs> as, you, as soon oh, as we moved man. to the United States, yeah, um, Damn. Things, things went, yeah, things just went downhill. So we were pretty, um, you know, we were we were pretty, uh, uh, not, we didn't have much money for a while, you know. I'll put it that. I mean, yeah, we never, yeah. you know, my mom always had food on the table, and uh, you know, we were, we always had a roof over our heads. But I mean, it was tough for a while, and uh, mm-hmm. but you know, she had she had a job and she put herself through school and raising two kids. Um, Wow. But I think, uh, and it's kind of funny we're kind of talking about this because I've been talking to my mom a lot uh, about this a lot recently, is that, you know, during that time, like when I moved to the United States, I mean, I, I didn't really have like an accent, but like my English wasn't necessarily the best either. Um, so like I would always fail. Remember like those AR tests they'd make you take? Oh, I was, so, we were both homeschooled, we were both Matthew. Homeschooled. <laughs> that, that's oh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Please, please share with the listeners though and with <laughs> <Yeah>. us. <laughs> what <Yeah>. is that? <laughs> <laughs> basically, I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's universally called an AR test or if it's just my particular mm-hmm. school, but basically, like, you'd have to read, like, a novel and, like, you'd have to do, like, go to the computer and take, like, tests, which is, like, quiz oh. about the plot of the book. Mm-hmm. And, like, you're oh, supposed yeah. to get enough points. I think points. ours is, like, reading fluency tests. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But I, I, like, for second, third, well, in the fourth grade, I mean, I failed those, like, left and right. Like, I, I just didn't um, know how to I just didn't know like how to read. I guess I mean, yeah. Uh, not not that I didn't know how to read the words. I just didn't know how to put put it together. Right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, granted, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you were learning a whole second language, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I knew English as a kid, but like, it, yeah, I mean, like, but I primarily spoke Japanese and Okinawa, right. so yeah. like, I didn't. I, Are you, do you still speak both fluently? Yeah, I mean, I sp- I mean, I can probably uh, my Japanese has gotten considerably because like so when we first moved to this country, my mom, um start speaking to me in English in the house so I can kind of improve on it um to me and my sister but that kind of came with the risk of us losing a lot of our Japanese um so like yeah like we can speak very basic conversational stuff and I I I speak a little bit better now because I've been taking Japanese to kind of like re refresh my skills um does it kind of come back like riding a bike or is it harder to kind of relearn yeah it mostly comes back pretty quickly like once I kind of know like how it works yeah like Mm -hmm. it's just stored away somewhere in my brain (laughs) just got to dig it up yeah Yeah. it's awesome it lives there Mm -hmm. yeah was was there a big cultural change from I I know you mentioned that uh Okamana had like a little pocket of America but was it a lot to move to everything being that pocket or yeah so I, I think what I was going to say about, like, moving here and my mom is that, like, so, like, because she was so busy, like, you know, supporting us, raising us, you know, putting herself through school and working a job, is that mm-hmm. we'd have to be enrolled in, like, these after-school programs at school. And uh, I think me being – in this this used to kind of – this used to, like, kind of, like, trigger me when I talked about it, but now I've come to, like, accept it and, like, kind of come to, like, mm-hmm. actually kind of find strength in it. <laughs> is that, like – you know, and I'm not ashamed to talk about it anymore because I feel like you know people i think especially asian kids need to rely on people that can like tell these stories is that i was you know i was mm-hmm. i was bullied pretty um vigorously in my after school program I mean, both physically and emotionally mm-hmm. yeah i mean just everything like you're called every name in the book told to go back to whatever country is in asia um i'm sorry to hear that and it was very confusing and like because you know i'm also supposed to be half american but it's like when i moved to this country i'm not really even accepted to be an american um right. mm-hmm. so i think when I was growing up in Okinawa, like the, 
the American culture I experienced was just, it wasn't as alienating until I like, moved to America and I kind of saw like the underbelly of American yeah. culture, I guess. Yeah. Dude, kids are fucking ruthless. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's bad. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of adults too. Yeah. And like, that's, I think that's the worst part is that, it, I mean, the, those kids who bullied me, I mean, they learned that somewhere. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember yeah, one, yeah. So like, I remember one time I was sitting in the after, you know, I'd be, I'd be one of, like, one of like the last to be picked up in the after school program. And uh, I was sitting there with like a friend of mine, actually not even a bully, but a friend of mine. And he, his dad walks in to pick him up. And like uh, my friend at the time pointed, I mean, introduced um, him to me. And the dad's like, oh, is this your uh, like Jap friend or like chink friend or something along those lines? Whoa. And just kind of walked away. Yeah. So like, like yeah, I, I remembered that pretty distinctly. And that's kind of when I noticed yeah. like, man, it's not just kids, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's so, so obvious and, and clear yeah. that uh, racism and hate. Of, yeah. of any kind is, is a, such a learned trait and yeah. kids pick up anything which can be really tough you know i'm not trying to justify like necessarily like their attitudes or what they did but you know mm-hmm. they're kids like they they learn from their environments they learn from right. authority figures so mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's important to talk about it too because mm-hmm. like as young adults it's it's a good time to really go back when we have we have a pretty clear memory of our childhood and think of there are there things I can unlearn are there things that I can let go and make mm-hmm. sure I'm not encouraging that attitude which is absolutely a, a hard and kind of scary thing to do but it's important yeah absolutely it's incredibly important I mean we are growing up and we're gonna be eventually we're gonna be the people raising the next generation so like mm-hmm. right we're responsible for being able to take that out you know yeah mm-hmm. no absolutely and uh yeah, and I think it's it's like you know whenever I used to tell this like I, I used to not I, I used to not really tell about me being bullied because it happened mostly in elementary school like the very early part of middle school but it stopped after that, um, but like I never told it because it was you know it's it's humiliating <laughs> to like admit that you're bullied yeah. you know and it's also I just didn't want to revisit those memories but I think especially recently because of COVID which is like the last time I checked like attacks hate hate crimes and physical attacks against Asian Americans has improved increased like two thousand percent or something ridiculously high like that and not only that mm-hmm. but I, I just see everywhere like how asian people are represented in media you know they're always kind of like the butt of the jokes or we're always the bad guys right and i feel yeah. like i have a responsibility to kind of like share my experience and because i feel like when i was yeah. that age I, you know I, I needed that older asian kind of or not just even asian but just older kind of marginalized person to say like hey i went through this too you know it's okay right so, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing like your story and your experience here because I, I hope that it can be something that can can be shared with other people who might be experiencing similar things. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you like now you, you seem like an incredibly intelligent like and well-adjusted and just like <laughs> remarkably well-adjusted our our catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> something that I notice with people like who go through like pain and trauma and like hardship is that they're able to grow especially if it was earlier they're able to grow Mm. more do you think that you've been able to grow a lot because of your experiences into like the person you are yeah i definitely say so i mean like you know even though like the bullying you know stopped like early middle school you know i mean it it, the struggle didn't stop there right i mean you know you're reminded every single day that you're different (laughs) because there's this kind of like unconscious mechanism i think in any exclusive society you know including white society is that you know, once you start to kind of fit in or once you start to kind of step on the wrong toes, there's this mechanism where it's like you're quickly reminded that you're different. 
you know, mm. or then when you're when you do kind of embrace your difference, then you're quickly kind of reminded, well, no, you're also an American, you know, or you're half white, mm. right? So it's this kind of tug of war. It's like, so what am I? Am I accepted in your group? Because if I become too accepted, then you remind me where well, you're different, you know. And then right. when I yeah. kind of say, okay, well, I am different, you know, f you, <laughs> and they're like, well, no, you're, no, you're an American citizen, you know. So it's there's just no yeah. winning on either side. There's no winning, um, yeah. It's and that, that's not just age. I, I think it's just almost. Like especially the case for like biracial people, right? Right. Um, um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, but I think that kind of conflict has really sharpened how I kind of analyze people and culture and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Do you identify more strongly with like saying that you're an American or saying that you're Japanese, or are you in neither of those groups exclusively? Yeah. When it fits me. <laughs> I mean, I can. You know, that, that, yeah, yeah. To be perfectly honest, I mean. I know. I try. You know, as 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 long as I've been confused, I feel like now it's a point in my life. I'm going to take agency of my identity. You know, like kind of pick apart what I like and don't like. But I think that's the difficult thing too. Is that the ironic part is that even when Americans call me Japanese, I kind of feel uncomfortable with that because uh, I I know George is familiar with it somewhat. But uh, you know, I'm I'm an indigenous Ryukyuan person from Okinawa, and uh, we have a very distinct culture from Japan. We were for most of our history, we were a separate country. Uh, we had our own languages and cultures and religions and stuff. And we kind of, um, we uh, started being colonized by the Japanese like in the late 1800s. And it's kind of persisting till today. And there's a huge kind of history with that. So, yeah, even when I'm called Japanese, it's like, yes, I'm nationally Japanese, I guess. But it's kind of, it would be the equivalent of calling kind of, I, I would suppose, like a Cherokee person, like American, like yeah, like they might identify as American, um, but it, it might be kind of hard with the history to just see yourself as just an American yeah. citizen, you know, kind of right. that that mm-hmm. way. Were you so. able to learn that history of Okinawa when you were growing up or was it something that you only learned about in your later life? I've always known that Okinawa is a little bit different, even when I was a child. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a child, you don't really know the, you know, political complexities, of, right. you, know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, different peoples and stuff. Um and, you know, my, my, especially my grandparents, they were very proud Okinawans. You know, they kind of upheld mm-hmm. the indigenous religions. They still spoke the language somewhat when they're kind of around like, like-minded like people. I didn't really start learning about it. it it's it's the kind of the saying, like, sometimes you're too close to the problem to see it. So I think when I was mm-hmm. in Okinawa, it just I took it for granted, that, that, that difference. But when I was away from it, I started doing my own research. And, like, every time I'd come back to Okinawa, I'd be like, I'd be like oh, wow, this is kind of, this is, huh, this is weird or this is different. And I feel like a lot of like the, a lot of like the objective history stuff I learned away from it, for sure. Have you been back to Okinawa in recent years, or has it been a while? The last time I was there was October of 2019, and oh, uh, oh wow, yeah. So like right before COVID and everything. Right before COVID, so Damn. yeah. Luckily, I I managed to get there before you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. How has your experience uh, immigrating to America? impacted the way that you study political science since so much of political science means american politics i think most okinawans don't view the u.s too favorably right because of the large occupation that happened there and just the history of you know just crimes against humanity to just put it bluntly i found many americans mm-hmm. don't view america exactly too yeah but th- there's there's those few okinawans that kind of still see the americans as sort of like like a necessary force almost that yeah they might not necessarily be the best but they freed us from the fascist the fascist japanese at the time um wow you know they they offer security and protection 
and you know, I kind of bought into that for a while, and I feel like right. a lot of my family members somewhat kind of believe in that. Not all of them, but like some of them. But I think moving to America, I mean, I see every day on the news just, you know, African-Americans just being executed on the streets of that trial. I see, mm-hmm. you know, immigrants being courted into concentration camps at the border. I see, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, hoarded into these small communities to live a life of poverty. I'm like, if if the United States government can't even, you know, practice justice on their own people, what makes you think they're going to practice justice on you, right? right. <laughs> so Absolutely. And yeah. it, it's insane that, like, I grew up kind of ashamed to admit it. I grew up like totally right wing. Like I was raised Republican and that's what I thought was right. And I, so I saw America as just like truth and justice (laughs) and the Mm -hmm. American way. And like, Mm -hmm. thank God I've gotten to go to college and get a liberal arts degree because it's just like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's shown it's, it's fucked Mm -hmm. how America is seen. They only see it through these like rose colored glasses. Yeah. And I think that's a good point you make is that, you know, I try not to be too like harsh on those people, even though I try to push them to kind of try to really think more critically. Right. I get it. You know, you're raised your entire lives every single day in school saying the Pledge of Allegiance and kind of fed this, you know, American exceptionalist history. It's, it's hard to let go of anything, you know, let alone kind of your national identity. Right. And I was also to say, like, yeah. Americans are bad. I think Americans are very good people. I mean, Americans have that sensibility for justice and freedom, um, which I feel like a lot of Asians kind of manipulate that to kind of fit their interests i think my perspective is unique because i think it's both an outside perspective and inside perspective right, <laughs> right? exactly and, and uh and that's kind of what i talked to maybe like a lot of fellow indigenous peoples back in okinawa is that or like just fellow okinawans i was like yeah like i understand you see the u.s this way but like just consider like what they're doing to african-americans or indigenous peoples mm-hmm. you know um and likewise i tell americans which i guess is more directed towards your question is um I tell people every every empire in history just says that they're different from the other empires, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. You know, um, Everyone for, wants to be the best. Right. You yeah, know, every hierarchy says it's not abusive. Yeah. that in, I just don't, I just kind of tell, like, do you really think America's any different? You know, like when they mm-hmm. occupy all these countries and bomb them to the Stone Age, basically, and go against the democratic will so if you if like if you claim to be fighting for freedom and democracy then why is it every chance you get to really uphold that you seem to uh fight it <laughs> right exactly yeah. you know yeah. um exactly. so like what are you fighting for right um i've i found my identity as, as an america has been hard to uphold in in many ways especially in I, I would even say like the past 10 years of my life when i started to like learn about history and one of the defining moments for me was i took a class about uh nuclear warfare my freshman Mm. year of college Mm. and if if you haven't really studied it it's a hard topic to study but i would i would definitely recommend reading a little bit about kind of the timeline of what really happened with hiroshima and nagasaki Mm -hmm. um and because some of that like like just really shook me to 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 my core to, to just realizing that i i am proud as an american to have the freedoms that i have mm-hmm. but i'm also aware as a queer female that a lot of the freedoms that i have happened in my lifetime mm-hmm. yeah. and i'm only 21 and that's scary mm-hmm. um and so I, I have hope for a future that has the interest of the people at heart but yeah. i think that it requires to be to be fought for especially the more i study about our past that i thought was so you know the knights in shining armor riding mm-hmm. in to save the day and mm-hmm 
were in fact the antagonist all along. That's what I was. That's what I was taught growing up. I mean, the one year I actually went to school, it was to a private Christian school, and so I got like <laughs> the most tented history ever. Uh, it was just like, yeah, we did all this to help other people, and it's like, no, you didn't. No, mm-hmm. you did not. I mean, honestly, looking at actual American history, America seems in a lot of cases like a tyrant just to mm-hmm. the rest of the world and it's kind of terrifying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think for individuals it's very it's very possible that the individual believes that they are doing the good right mm-hmm. that they really believe that they're doing what is what is best but i've kind of like blown out big picture and i see just like the here's the money that's behind it and you go like ah right, right. that person may have thought they were doing good but they're just putting money in someone's mm-hmm. pockets even if they didn't realize yeah, I think I think to go back to your question, Georgia, about like what identity I identify most. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there are there are like there are some things I'd probably call myself an American, right? I mean, I really like America's like I guess you know as a philosophy major, I really like America's philosophical tradition, right? Like the pragmatists mm-hmm. and the transcendentalists, and you know I find a lot of inspiration from those kind of philosophies of freedom and democracy and mm-hmm. self reliance and yeah. stuff. And I think American culture, in that respect, I think has an emancipatory aspect to it. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, unfortunately, I think, you know, whenever I hear about like the atrocities committed against my people, like my mother's people, right. I mean, how on earth can I just say like, oh, I'm an American. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's like difficulties in that. And, you know, even though I, even though I'm definitely more Americanized, I feel like considering like my formative years were spent here in America. Um, I still have that, like, I think tied to the indigenous, like, you know, my indigenous roots and okinawa because um i feel you know i i know what it's like to i know what it's like to kind of be dominated and abused and manipulated mm-hmm. and reminded of your inferiority you know and i feel like mm-hmm. i i i find a lot of resemblance with that right and i see the way america mm-hmm. treats other countries other people not just outside of america but even in america and it's kind of hard for me to be proud of the government at least <laughs> the united yeah. states government right yeah um, I do want to make a distinction. You know, people and governments are different. Very you know? different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I am, I'm yeah. proud to be an American. I often yeah. have a lot of trouble having pride in the actions of the government that runs the country I live in. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about earlier. You were like, a lot of the American people are like good people. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. Okay, I, I don't want to sit there and like throw in a lot. I don't yeah. know. They're well-meaning. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, well-meaning yeah. for sure. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. a little ignorant, but mm-hmm. well-meaning. I think many people are learning in the ways that they can. Yeah. I, but I don't think education is uh, like. Uh, oh, it was. Issue. It was not. It was not you, Cody. It was my friend Bryson was talking about um, that documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yes. That yeah. mentions how, uh, depending on who you follow and who you like, that if I were to look up, um, you know, COVID, then for me it would come up like COVID cases. This is what's happening. But if someone who uh, frequently follows more right-wing material on their Instagrams or their Facebook were to look up COVID, they might come up with things that were like, COVID's a hoax and this isn't real. Yeah. Um, so education, even internet ac- inter- internet accessible education isn't uh, equalized. We don't all get the same material because Absolutely. there's this force trying to make money off of our exactly. use of the internet. I had a conversation with my mom's boyfriend over Christmas break. And he was telling me, he was like sitting there citing sources of why wearing a mask didn't help COVID. Mm. And like there were sources for it. They weren't necessarily reliable sources, but they were Mm. sources. And like that stuff is what comes up when they search COVID. Whereas when I searched it, you know, the CDC's website came up 
said, "Hey, masks <laughs> yeah. are good, idiot." Like yeah. what? <laughs> and, and like I, I think I find that my my understanding of how ignorance is not really a choice, how what you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. It can be kind of enforced upon you, and when we yeah. hear people say stuff like, "Like, oh, you went to college and you became a liberal," yeah, like, or right. I went to college and I was presented with material I couldn't access otherwise. Matthew, have you found that your your politics or your like your vision of the world at all has changed in college, or were you kind of always in this realm in high school as well? It's not that I haven't learned anything new. Of course, not like I learned, had different experiences, but i think it's more so that my vision of the world's been sharpened if that makes more sense than changed oh yeah you that know makes because I, i've always wanted i know it's a bit abstract but i've always wanted freedom i've always wanted mm-hmm. authentic community i've always wanted people who can get along right and, and right. i feel like just ca- having the weapons of academia <laughs> i guess i'll use that <laughs> word although academia can have bad connotations <laughs> will help me accomplish that to whatever small mm-hmm. bigger bigger part i play um so yeah, I mean, you're right, George. I mean, ignorance, sometimes ignorance is a choice, but a lot of the times it really is just pandered to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, education in America. It's also just look at our Hollywood industry. Um, oh, yeah. You know, how people are presented. I mean, kind of going back to the Asian thing, right? I mean, when I, at least, I mean, it's getting a little bit better recently, but at least when I was a child, the only Asians that were on TV were, you know, these badass Jackie Chan people. Um, a really high expectation is set for any Asian person. Um, or these nerdy, pervy, kind of like submissive, you know, um, really butt of the jokes, right? right. And if yeah. they're neither, then they're the enemy. They're the they're like the, the people that mm-hmm. the white people they're like the, we're the people that the white people shoot, you know. So the other, the other, exactly, yeah, yeah. So and like that's, that that's kind. A, of, I, I think representation in media is is mm-hmm. genuinely like. I, I think the importance of representation in media cannot be understated, mm-hmm. but I feel a, a very deep sadness when I look at the difference between the representation rates on screen rising while the writer or the director representation rates stay exactly the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you still have like white straight men writing the experiences that they have never experienced. That exactly. gives me almost a, like a deep anger. Right. It is getting better and like that's super mm-hmm. exciting. Mm-hmm. But like even at that, I, I feel like this change could happen faster and it still mm-hmm. seems like it's taking forever. No, I agree. I mean, and I think, you know, change in media representatives is good, and I think that's a very big big step towards the right direction, but I think people might get kind of, like, satisfied by that itself, you know? Right. Um, people saying they want it to change, and then they're right. like, and that's good enough. Exactly, and, like, yeah. not addressing, like, the material needs of the community or, like, mm-hmm. the injustices that they're faced outside the cinema room, right? Um, it's almost like media just reinforces that facade of equality, yeah. even if it's not really exactly. in existence. That's been media's job forever. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it just enforces the facade, no matter what, no matter where you are. Exactly, and I, I think going back to the um, kind of the Asian representation. I mean, I, I, I think also kind of just want to mention it's it's mostly been hard on Asian women women um, because I've talked to plenty of them, and it's hard to a point where that image of Asian women just being crazy for white men being submissive um you know just it it has effects and that effects is that you know sexual violence against women and asian women in america is very high because of that right Mm -hmm. because that image of the media presents as asian women just being so crazy for white men um Mm -hmm. causes violence and it almost commodifies an entire it does it commodifies you know and i I think about my mother i think about my sister i'm like these you know they're not commodities they're not um you know they're they're human beings right so yeah absolutely mm. 
that's a, that's a, a fascinating perspective that I, I really hadn't considered before mm-hmm. was that that gender difference as well mm-hmm. um what what is like a, a piece of media as, as far as like representation goes or, or even stuff you learn from philosophy that you think more people should read or interact with that's impacted you uh, are you asking like what what like specific like maybe shows or plays or movies I, honestly anything anything yeah. that mm-hmm. like that you've seen that you've been like this is a level of representation that i wish more people could see and more people could join into mm-hmm. um i there's probably plenty of things i can name but what the first thing that comes to the top of my head and i, I bring this up because i actually just watched this movie the other night <laughs> so <laughs> i'm gonna go with that uh is uh, it's an old movie though it's the battle of algiers um hmm. i don't know if you've heard it, it was it was directed I, like not. it was directed like in the 50s or 60s and um it's a very contra- it's 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 like praise is one of like the best movies ever made like in the 20th century mm-hmm. um, it was directed by uh ponte corvo who's his italian director and hmm. it's a movie about the algerian war for independence against french colonialism right and the reason why this movie yeah. was so controversial is because you know the dark-skinned arabs were the heroes <laughs> and they were fighting the 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 white colonial masters right and huh. it, it was so ahead of its time and it talked about like mm-hmm. the struggles of colonialism and talked about the struggles of being you know in a military occupation how much people are willing to sacrifice for that and i think that wow. kind of movie i think we should be should be made more nowadays it's just like we we you know we also believe in our rights <laughs> we also believe in our freedom we meaning i guess just colonized marginalized historically colonized marginalized peoples and just like, you know, the Americans of 1776 were ready to die for it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that kind of representation is important is that it really fights against, I guess, kind of like this white man's burden that persists in the, even the 21st century where like, mm-hmm. like, George, like you and Georgia, uh, you, Dakota and Georgia were saying that, um, you know, America has to be the hero everywhere. They has to yeah, you know, intervene. Right. It has yeah. to be the main character. It has to whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I think giving that kind of agency to people of color yeah. really – really can change self-image for people of color in reality so i think the the us versus them mentality has Mm -hmm. such a a true level of danger to it where Mm -hmm. instead of saying everyone deserves freedom we often get a lot of rhetoric that's like america deserves to stay free Mm -hmm. and i think that every person deserves Mm -hmm. freedom i think every every person who's existing in this world should exist in a world where they can be free and experience freedom and experience a life that is Mm -hmm. not burdened by need and oppression right um and it's it's hard to to believe that for the people that i interact with daily Mm -hmm. and then realize that some of those people are not extending that to people who don't live on our soil that's something that's always gotten kind of gotten to me i think for me it kind of cuts really deep because you know in in american society we sell you know every july 4th we celebrate the the revolution right we celebrate Mm -hmm. John Locke, who is not an American revolutionary, but he's like a philosopher that influenced, he's a philosopher that influenced the American revolution. You know, John Locke or Thomas Jefferson, um, John Adams, like they talked about, you know, the need to fight for your freedom, to shed blood for freedom, to sacrifice yourself for Mm -hmm. freedom, whatever means necessary. And we celebrate that. And I don't think that's necessarily bad in itself, but, you know, people of color, if we have that same kind of same commitment to freedom that we're willing to die we're willing to fight we're willing to be violent if it means we get to be free mm-hmm. we're seen as terrorists right or we're seen as radical you know be right. peaceful you know um uh maintain the status quo don't get out of line and i mean what we've seen even this even just this summer is, yeah. is many yeah, people exactly. of color being that willing to fight for their freedom mm-hmm. and that is something that is is not recognized in the same way exactly it's it's honestly it's incredible and it's brave and like 
I like I've talked to plenty of people like mostly extended older family who are just like but there's just there's better ways to go about it or they're already in oh, America the they're already damage. free and it's like <laughs> no no yeah. like your freedom may not be equal to someone else's freedom based off of right. the exactly. experiences that they have in their daily life yeah. the, the argument that made me most mad was just saying like well you know they have the right to protest and stuff but they shouldn't be rioting and it's like what well, wouldn't you isn't that what we were like told America to do is fight for on freedom riots. and it's mm-hmm. like that's exactly what should be happening at this mm-hmm. point and i think i mean i think i mean i think african americans have much more reasons to um be violent than uh the american settlers of 1776 right <laughs> absolutely you know <laughs> that, that's the thing yeah i mean i mean you know one is fighting literally for their lives not be executed on the streets without trial the other is fighting because they didn't want to pay taxes <laughs> so you know i'm currently in a government class and i've been mm-hmm. so fascinated to talk about the different socioeconomic groups that mm-hmm. were actually starting the revolution and, and the people who were the most willing to start the revolution were the poor and the working class and the mm-hmm. only way that we actually were able to mm-hmm. have a successful revolution mm-hmm. was when the rich merchants uh, mm-hmm. were like wait a second they're taxing our sugar no mm-hmm. thank you and they got all mad about it mm-hmm. um and it, it frustrates me because then you, you see this this through line where you have okay the revolution was possible because these richer more successful people got on board and then they become the federalists and they're these richer non-working class people and you have the anti-federalists who are like hey guys let's have a bill of rights please um <laughs> and and they're fighting over this thing and then you, you see the government just continuously be rich people for yeah. the most part who are deciding the fate of poor people and working class people who don't have the time to fight for themselves that's why landowning white you know men were the only ones allowed to vote <laughs> because um yeah right <laughs> And, and you bring up a, you bring up a great point, George. Is also that like I mean a lot of the Southern slave owners was were on board the American Revolution because you know there was talks in the British government about abolishing slavery, right? Mm. Um, oh yeah. my God! You know the American Revolution. I, I think it, I think it's, it has its progressive elements. Don't get me wrong, but I think there's many things that we just don't address, mm-hmm. and it, it's very dangerous when you don't have that nuance and narrative because then you you kind of come to conclusions like you said, Dakota, where you know, people believe America's free. That's it. Right. <laughs> right. right. They yeah. just believe the yeah. one thing. Mm-hmm. I, my, my friend is in the army right now and mm-hmm. like, you know, thank you for your service and all my, mm-hmm. my man. Uh, mm-hmm. But, and he's a medic and like, he's in the x-ray tech. So he's where he wants to be, which is good. Um, But yeah. he hates, like, he really does like kind of hate the army and what it stands for. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he was signing up for it, they frame themselves as like the good guys out of yeah. everyone in the world. They're like, we are America. We're the heroes. And they're like writing this kind of fake narrative that they don't, they don't talk about everything. And like mm-hmm. to an extent, I c- kind of get it. If they're about to send people off to fight, they don't want to be like, Hey, we're shit. We're mm-hmm. bad. Like, so they want people on their side, but still it, it seems so deceitful to me. Yeah, I, I think it's especially hard because, like, I, I have a lot of veterans in my family. I have a mm-hmm. uh, family who's uh, actively in service. And, and it is hard because, like, I love them dearly. I, I love my grandfathers so much. And hearing their stories is hard because I, I hear a level of, of sadness and hurt that was grown from mm. being in war. Yeah. And I have to imagine that that is on both sides, that no, no matter who oh. was fighting, 
the people who were fighting were not benefiting. They were only in this this dangerous and harmful situation. Right. Um, and it was causing them pain. Yeah. And so, like, like as someone who's who's like more and more growing into a pacifist, I I find myself falling into the space of like, war is bad. There's not a bad guy or a good guy. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be fighting, and war that it hurts should... me that we have to. Oh, it it hurts so bad. I'm I'm in a global issues class where we are talking a lot about this and like tactics of war, why we have war and stuff. But it just mm. ah, it the more I learn about it, the more pointless it seems. <laughs> it's like there's literally a bunch of like rich people. In mm-hmm. their rooms, and they're just like, "All right, we're gonna send this many men to go fight," and like, it's just a numbers game. It's not you could get, mm-hmm. you could achieve the same thing if you were doing like a tournament in video games. Just let them play it's Black a board Ops. Game. <laughs> Two countries sit down and pay, play Smash Bros. Whoever wins, <laughs> yeah. Because really, everything else, you're just, you're just, because we've talked about about fighting for freedom and fighting against imperialism, and I like, I, I genuinely believe that, like, e- even as a pacifist, and, and I wish that the many many wars we've had in our history that that those lives had not been lost and i wish yeah. that pain had not been felt but i understand fighting against oppression and fighting mm-hmm. against what what's harming you but mm-hmm. it, it is hard hard to see fights where we're like this is effectively a fight over money and that, right. that's hard to see right and, it, and uh, it, yeah it becomes yeah. more and more frequent i mean i don't know we we were just talking a little bit about it how the people when the actual revolution started it was because the wealthier merchants were like, oh, we don't like these taxes, not when the poor were revolting. Mm-hmm. It's like people say that, you know, the the winner writes history and stuff and like to the victor go the spoils and everything. But really, it's like to the rich at this yeah. point. Like they're the ones that are really controlling things. They're the ones controlling the government at this point. Right. It's it's terrifying. And so like. uh classism is just a yeah. huge issue yeah well welcome to the party comrade i mean <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that flows so nicely into my next question yeah. which is uh if you don't mind sharing like what are your political thoughts what, yeah what kind of world would you like to see so yeah i think i think to answer that fully um actually kind of going back to dakota says like kind of or and you too um george when you mentioned your family is that it, it's hard to really criticize america's military culture when so many americans have relatives or close friends in the military. And look, I get it. My dad was in the military. Um, I grew up with military brats um, in the Iraq war who are afraid of their fathers coming back or not. So like, I understand, I, you know, people, I, I tell people who call me a soldier hater that like, no, I was, I was there. Um, but we should care for like our subjective people, our family and friends. And like, of course I care about my father. My father's a pacifist now too, by the way. He, he, he's, he told me a lot of stories about his time in the military but I'm very honest with my friends in the military and even family members. Like, look, if there comes a situation where I have to pick a side between the United States military, you know, the United States government or the freedom of my people, I'm not going to hesitate to side with my people, right? Even if it means I need to pick up the gun, unfortunately. And I, and I tell them, let's hope we just don't get there, right? Yeah. Let's try to work this out peacefully. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's uh, pressure the U.S. government. Let's, let's you know, try to build a better world without having to pick up the gun and like georgia says i mean i'm a pass at the end of the day i'm a pacifist i think all war is reprehensible but as george already said you know sometimes in history you have no other choice but to live in slavery or to pick up the gun right or to pick up the right. weapon mm-hmm. and i think you see that throughout you know throughout all history but especially in the 20th century and um so I think segueing that into my political views, I'm a Marxist, <laughs> basically. Hey. Um, and 
for me, that means Marxism is a it is a method to analyze history. It's a method to analyze social relations. It's a method to analyze, look past what people claim is one thing when it's really the other, to put it in a very, I guess, vague sense. All Marxists believe that history is a series of class struggles, right? Or at least modern hist- uh, human history, not necessarily all of history, right? right? You know? I mean, there, he, there's history before humans <laughs> existed. The dinosaurs just out yeah, there yeah, with, like, yeah. communism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. dinosaurs had a class yeah, struggle, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the triceratops overthrowing the tyrannosaurus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God. No, but it's this idea that as long as we've had the state or as long as we've had, like, you know, hierarchies based off social, political, economic domination, there's always been people who – basically people who have and people who have not right and history mm-hmm. kind of moves forward through like the struggle between those groups right. um and right now in the age of capitalism i mean it's a bit more complicated than this but you know the two main class i'm sure you heard is the proletariat and the bourgeoisie you know the proletariat's the those who work and the bourgeoisie is those who accumulate yeah. <laughs> right yeah so i i've done like i would not cons- i don't consider myself a, a marxist but mm-hmm. i have in in like most recent years gotten into studying more about it and and like what turns me away from it specifically is like some feminist issues and the fact that i am religious and Mm -hmm. the idea of of marx not supporting religion Mm. kind of turned me away because that's something that's important to my life and i think uh in a diverse way with many religions being supported is important is important to society Mm -hmm. um how, how do you feel about like um the religious aspects of, of Marxism, do you support that or are you a different belief? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a, that's actually a very common question because like we, we get a lot of people very interested in the cause here, especially like in the South, mm-hmm. but they're very like religious, especially Christian, mm-hmm. right? And like, that's yeah. the one thing they've been mm-hmm. told about Marx. And Marx himself wasn't, of course, a big fan of religion. He was an atheist by all mm-hmm. means and accounts. But, you know, the, his famous quote that religion is the opiate of the masses, he wasn't necessarily saying like belief in a higher power or belief in this sort of hidden realm behind you know the realm of appearances is necessarily like evil or bad Mm -hmm. you're just saying the way religion has been used is to for people to kind of be okay with their kind of subpar existence and oppression and slavery Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean almost all marxists today i mean every everyone in the party i'm involved in all marxists i talk to all over the world they're okay with religion Mm -hmm. (laughs) right um I mean, I mean, if you go to Latin America, there's this really unique kind of movement there called liberation theology, where people kind of mix Marxism with c- Catholic theology Whoa. to kind of fight U.S. Wow. imperialism. Or even, I mean, I have, I have a friend in who, who's Iraqi, and he's he's a very, very, very devout Muslim, but he's also a Marxist, right? Um, wow. Not to mention, yeah. you know, plenty of indigenous people, indigenous cultures that still maintain their indigenous religions, but we're not afraid to call themselves Marxist, right? Because Marxism isn't... Yeah. You know, that's the cool thing about Marxism is that it goes beyond just Marx and his shortcomings. Because Marx, yeah. you know, Marx had many, he was a human being, you know, he's right. destined to make errors and mistakes just like any of us. So, but Marxism, as opposed to Marx's thoughts, Marxism is this continuous kind of updating his original thesis, mm-hmm. right? To fit yeah. modern conditions, to fit new. Um, uh, so, for example, like back in Marx's day, um, LGBTQ plus issues just were not discussed that much in mainstream mm-hmm. politics. Um, and as Marxists, it's our responsibility to integrate that movement, integrate that discourse, integrate that struggle into ours and make that a primary goal too, right? Absolutely. It feels similar to uh, 
what Dakota and I have talked about in the past about how religion can can shift and, and grow mm-hmm. to where things that you know 50 100 200 years ago in my religion mm-hmm. might been ha- might have been taboo we mm-hmm. can still put like find ways that they fit into what i believe and, and find mm-hmm. ways that that it's not so so strange to add that in now and i think the yeah. same is true of political thought i mean most mm-hmm. political ideologies do not include the woman's perspective whatsoever mm-hmm. um and so as as a woman like it's my job to help put that in there as well and, and see how it fits in. I, I've noticed specifically with like labor oriented stuff. Um, it's very, very rare. And Marx talks about it a little bit with reproductive labor. Where we really consider the work that women historically did around a house to be labor because it was unpaid. Yeah. And so now when we look into a, a world where there is more equality around labor, we have to think about uh, how those things divvy out and how they can be shared and mm-hmm. uh, d- domestic labor can be, you know, shared between multiple people's responsibilities. It's a very famous dictum in Marxism is that, you know, if we establish socialism, if we get to communism, that doesn't mean racism is over. It doesn't mean sexism is over. It doesn't mean homophobia is over. I mean, it doesn't mean transphobia is over. I mean, there's a lot of cultural leftovers that we need to combat, right? That we need to set right, that we need to give agency to people, marginalized peoples. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, us Marxists combat something called like class reductionism, right? Which is what the orthodox Marxists might have been is that they reduce everything to just class, right? Well, you know, mm-hmm. women's issues aren't important be- or they're, they're secondary to class issues or, you know, mm-hmm. trans pe- struggles secondary to class issues or race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, almost every Marxist I know doesn't really believe in that anymore, right? Um, right. Yeah. We try to take a more ecological perspective of class struggle. Um, yeah. You know, that's shifted now because they're intersectional of course exactly yeah you got to take everyone into account Mm -hmm. i don't know that's that's the hard thing i i talked to my parents who like granted i think i'm working like like my mom's kind of changing her ideas about it but like they're diehard capitalists and they'll always (laughs) like ask me they're just like well like what do you suggest then like what's the better Mm -hmm. thing and i'm like i don't i don't know i don't know if Mm -hmm. there's a better ism out there but Mm -hmm. i just know Mm -hmm. that this isn't it. it 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 we need to include not it doesn't have to be something that just fights for one group of people it has to fight for everybody mm-hmm, everybody exactly. needs to have what they deserve and what they deserve is like access to food water shelter enough mm-hmm. wealth to live comfortably like absolutely what, what education education, healthcare. Oh, education. Oh, of course healthcare. yeah <laughs> all of these things yeah my like my my most base level perspective is if you can't live without it it should be free mm-hmm. um so food water shelter medicine base level but mm-hmm. like my personal utopia my personal like dream mm-hmm. is that what you need is always provided to you and within those needs should be included education and healthcare. yeah because um, i think Absolutely. that people need those and i i, I think we yeah. know that yeah. people need those those yeah. are those they should probably be probably right. need it maybe right. <laughs> i know like god i i've got that uh, blue cross blue shield bronze plan and like <laughs> Oh. that's not cutting it oh, it's man. not cutting gonna oh, get you on board for socialism it's the blue cross blue shield bronze <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. If, if everyone switched to that try it out for like a month just a month yeah. you know get a hospital bill then like you'll see no need to share any any readings or any any plans you know you don't need to read about marxism just um just, just sign up do for that. Blue cross blue shield bronze plan, up for that and, plan. uh you'll be on that real quick <laughs> absolutely <Right>. absolutely <laughs> Yeah, for From sure. Capitalist to socialist, like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and like even though even though we are joking about this, it is right. really worth noting that a very large percentage of Americans have no insurance whatsoever, yeah. and mm-hmm. therefore cannot receive health care in any aspect. And health, um, 
Mm-hmm. Even the bronze plan is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- that's 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 the thing is that like you know, th- for me, the greatness of Marx's you know science is what what we Marxists call it is that it, he realized that economic structures like anything have a lifespan, right? They come mm-hmm. and they go, and feudalism came, it went. Slave societies came and went. You know, uh, hunter gatherer society they came and went because you know as, as technology progresses, mm-hmm. economic structures change too. So. Mm-hmm capitalism yeah i mean it, it, it's brought about great innovations for mankind you know, mass production you know mass, like easy distribution of goods across large populations but like any good thing right capitalism has its final days right and we're, you know when we're in late stage where, yeah now. exactly and when, when when you have a system where you have more houses than home houseless people where you have more food than you know starving people we, we have enough food to feed the world 10 times a day mm-hmm. and when you have unemployment, when there's so much work to be done, I mean, it's time to go, right? I mean, just look at our planet, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Did you see the, like, I, I don't know. It was sometime last year. They put up a clock in New York that was just counting down how much time we have left until. No, I didn't see that. Until global warming is completely irreversible and, like, we're <sighs> fucked. And it was, mm, it was terrifying because it was like seven years before it's like right now we've gotten to a point where it's pretty much irreversible like we've done mm-hmm. irreversible damage to the planet um yeah for profit like, what's that for profit for pro- yeah. oh exactly it's yeah, all yeah. for money it's all for mm-hmm. something that we made up a currency mm-hmm. we made up and mm-hmm. we're like literally destroying the place we live for it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and give it give it six more years now and right. it will be so irreversible that the end of the world might literally come in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's, it's a terrifying it is a, thought. It's a dismal prospect that I do want to offer a, a personal amount of optimism. Oh, please. That we I need the seen. optimism. <laughs> I mean, I've, as many as many things as you see that's like, like the world's ending and what are you going to do? Stop drinking plastic straws, you dummy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I think the power of the individual in that sense is limited, of course. Mm-hmm. But I've seen the power of the collective mind to be mm-hmm. incredible. I, I've Absolutely. seen um, innovations like they, they've just uh, unveiled this thing that can go out into the Arctic and make, I shit you not, giant ice cubes that mm. cover the Arctic and protect it and could very possibly save all of those endangered animals mm-hmm. that we are at risk of losing as, as well as uh, reduce the impacts of the ice caps melting. Um, I've, I've seen a variety of different uh, options for cleaning the ocean and mm-hmm. all these incredible innovations to reduce plastic and, and to, to reduce overproduction and to so recycle in an actually useful way. We became environmentally conscious as a collective roughly in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And since that time, we have been able to learn about it we've been able to grow from it and we're now producing a incredible amount of scholars and scientists and advocates who are ready and able to change it and i see them making an impact that i have hope for and i hope that Mm -hmm. it can go in a good direction oh absolutely the power of the internet is is absolutely Mm -hmm. incredible It, it has power to do some pretty awful things but there's also amazing things happening i mean you've i've seen so many in the past year just like different organizations and websites that are like Mm-hmm. donate a dollar and we'll plant a tree and they'll like raise <laughs> millions and millions of dollars i think mm-hmm. uh, a youtuber i don't know if you've heard of him, mr beast he's from north carolina he's incredibly popular um has way too much money for his own good and he gives a lot of it away <laughs> um 
but he started one that was like planting i think 20 million trees by the end of 2020 mm-hmm. and they reached nice. their goal like it was incredible so right. like yeah it's it's amazing to see that despite all like government power despite all mm-hmm. of that there are still people just the mm-hmm. population banding together to do their mm-hmm. part yeah. mm-hmm. it, it's my firm belief that structural and systemic change is required to make a better world but yes. i do also firmly believe that the collective conscious and the collective intention for a better world holds much more power than we often give yeah. credit for. and like you guys say you guys say in the nail too right is that especially what you said georgia is that like as marxists we see is that you know the the power to create institutions the power to create you know societal structures lays at the end of the day in the hands of the people right mm-hmm. and when you when we're living in and you're right uh georgia is like we need, we need a little bit of optimism when it comes to you know when we're facing the end of days and i think marxism for me at least is the most optimistic is that we mm-hmm. we point to the skies and we say you know look we we can overcome this you know we can build a better society we you know we can overthrow our oppressors we can breathe <laughs> right yeah and it, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't you know I, that, that's what i was talking about my friend the other day is that you know so many people nowadays are so cynical and I think people mm-hmm. see cynicism as like realism or like, oh, you're just being real if right. you're cynical. For me, cynicism is just a defense mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a way for there's, you to avoid a... responsibility, avoid the struggle, you mm-hmm. know? You know, it's a way to kind of like keep yourself comfortable and isolated and not have to face mm-hmm. the consequences of what our generation, past generations has done. Right. So There's yeah. a great song that I love that's called Cynicism, where the defining line of it is uh, cynicism isn't wisdom. It's a lazy way to say that you've been hurt. Yeah, I think that like we know that like generationally, especially like those of us who are like under twenty five, we've experienced a hefty amount of generational trauma, mm-hmm. um, and it can make us cynical. And those mm-hmm. who are who are older than us have a similar experience where they've uh, so many different, I mean, economic downfalls, so much hardship, so many uh, times when you feel like you can't get back on your feet, mm-hmm. and it, it can make you feel like you have to fight for yourself by pushing others down. Yes. And I think we have to fight against that cynicism to believe that we can lift one another up in in a mm. positive way um, that is meaningful and and can make lasting change for everyone. Right. Absolutely. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like, you know, Marx back in his days de- uh, days said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. But I think nowadays cynicism is the opiate of the masses. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy with being online. You, there's there's mm-hmm. so the anonymity allows you to feel so uh, comfortable being cruel. I would say. Mm-hmm. Until you actually face the person that you're, right? Until you see them in person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People are a lot less. People are a lot less confident in person. I, yeah. I definitely know. Then you're that. not as brave, huh? When you see when you see that person. Yeah, in person. yeah. exactly. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong. Like, I I said the whole thing about global warming. And I, that is a true fact, and that's not yeah. meant to be a, a cynical thing. Rather, maybe not inspiration, but more like. I, I don't know. I'm not thinking of the right word for it. Inspiration to get up and like do it, yeah. to do something about it. I mean, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. I'm an eternal optimist. Like mm-hmm. I try to rein myself in sometimes and look through a mm-hmm. realist perspective, but optimism is the only way to like really get there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to have hope for the future. Yeah. Otherwise, there's nothing worth fighting for. You have to. I, I believe realism is, is attached. For me personally, mm-hmm. realism is attached to hope in the way that if I can't see the reality of the world around me, then my hope for the future is blinded. Right. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking at the world and I'm saying like, everything's perfect and it'll be perfect in the future too. 
then that optimism is useless. But if I, if I look at the world and I say, I really see what's going on around me, I really mm-hmm. see the reality of what I'm living in, and I'm not pleased with it. And therefore, I will move forward with hope and move forward with optimism and and take that reality and, and push for something that is better, push for a better reality. Absolutely. Um, that's that's how realism impacts me personally. Mm-hmm. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, like, realism, because I see where Dakota's coming from. I kind of share a lot of sensibilities that, like, I, I do try to scare people <laughs> to act, right? Exactly. You yeah. know, I, I mean, I, I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist, but also you need a little bit of push. Like if you, mm-hmm. if, yeah. you if you, either if you do this or if you don't do this, there's going to be consequences, right? Push. Yeah. That was the word yeah. I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, look, we all, like, to Curtis, we need to face that possibility that the world might end if we do not act, right? And like, yeah. it's important to have that realization. But mm-hmm. it's also a good balance that optimism is a way to say, but it doesn't have to be this way right we have the power in our hands to change mm-hmm. yeah it's, instead of like oh, oh everything is terrible and there's nothing we can do about it instead mm-hmm. it's like, like things may not be good right now but things mm-hmm. have been bad before and we mm-hmm. can make them better and we have to make them better mm-hmm. um right because like i i want to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren i, I want mm-hmm. for them to lead a easy and and comfortable life mm-hmm. um and whatever challenge that they might face i hope that they would not be met with hardship and oppression, but with with the the ability and mm-hmm. the hope that their life could be better, um, mm-hmm. and, and so that is kind of why I'm I'm so intent on change and so so intent on mm-hmm. pushing for for better things. It's like absolutely, y- yeah. Things are terrible, so we have to be hopeful. Yeah, right. that's yeah. yeah. And make it make it tangible. Exactly. Fight exactly. For, mm-hmm. for uh, sure. This is so fun. I love it. like just. <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed this. Yeah. yeah, I've enjoyed this element of the, of the interview so much. I, yeah. I do kind of want to change topics a little bit. Yeah, You've mentioned two topics, uh, both uh, Marx's comment that religion is the, the open of the masses, as well as talking about um, the culture in uh, your indigenous ancestry mm. and the religious traditions there. Are you mm-hmm. personally religious or spiritual in any way? Personally, I, I call myself like an open-minded atheist and... It's funny because I'm like doctrinally an atheist, but I'm probably like a practicing like indigenous. Because <laughs> it's it's usually the other way around with like Americans. Like, well, I'm 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 like a doctrinal Christian, but I'm pra- I'm not really practicing. You know what I mean? So for me, it's like the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, what I mean by that is like you find this a lot, like in especially in East Asian cultures, that religion has like a different form there, different from like the West, like in Islam or Christianity, or even Judaism is, you know, you know, Okinawans and usually. Rikuans and I guess the greater East Asian population, we don't really kind of it kind of confuses us to say you can only follow one religion Um, Mm. because as I'm pretty sure you will know pretty well, Georgia, because I know you do a lot of study on this, is that like you know, like a lot of East Asian societies, they take inspiration from Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, yeah. their own like native it has religions. has a, a term yeah. called a diffuse religion, um, yeah. which which specifically refers to Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism all um, basically having open borders. They, they share traits mm-hmm. with one another. Um, and so while you might say like, oh, I'm a Confucianist, you might also practice a Taoist ritual. And yeah. it doesn't have the binary that... Uh, islam and christianity have even though like those might have similar stories but yeah. they don't have open borders that's the way to be that's the, it's just like <laughs> spiritual without labels i yeah i highly appreciate that mm-hmm. right and that, but, but dakota i would like to, to mention that there are labels you can still right. identify closely yeah. as one religion mm-hmm. while practicing elements of others absolutely um so for versus it being like labelist like like the pantheism that we've mm-hmm. talked about there are still labels and identities but uh more shared culture right yeah 
That's and that's just fascinating. I love that. Mm. Yeah, but but I want to hear uh, more about what you were saying mm-hmm. with indigenous culture. I think it's because like East Asia doesn't have a really noticeable history with like monotheistic religions, um, mm-hmm. like the West does, where it's kind of more. And I'm not saying this in a bad way, but they're usually just in more absolutist religions. Mm-hmm. And I think there's good. I think there's some good elements to that, but. Um, but like like uh, what George was saying, like they are diffuse religion, they have open borders, but that's also not to say that they don't have bloody histories of their own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like at least in Ryukyu or specifically the island of Okinawa, um, so we have like an indigenous religion, right? Which we kind of believe like a set of gods and ancestral spirits and like, you know, uh, different realms. Uh, and, you know, it, it suffered persecution during Japanese colonialism when they try to kind of more enforce like imperial centric shintoism which is like the religion of the primary religion of the japanese people um also like you know when buddhism was introduced like buddhism would be met with hostility anywhere um so okinawa like any i think east asian society has a very interesting history like different religions and philosophies interacting with each other and those interactions kind of form very unique cultural pockets i think that's awesome how do you how have you observed the uh interaction of religion and culture in okinawa versus the interaction of religion and culture in america yeah so like my my mom's actually a christian she converted when i was about like seven years old eight years old seven Mm -hmm. or eight um something like that so but like before that like i grew up in a very like um my my family the miyagi family they're very religious even for like japanese standards so it was a lot of ceremonies a lot of prayer a lot of um like very ritualistic things like offering food to like the ancestors and whatnot and also, you know, visiting shamans and dream readers and stuff like that. Whoa. And mm-hmm. I always, I kind of had the exposure as a child. And it, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, it, it kind of scared me, <laughs> right? <laughs> to see, to see like, like shamans talking to like themselves. <laughs> so yeah, like what, what, yeah, what it perceived to be. And then when my, and then, you know, when we were going through a rough time with my dad's kind of situation, our family situation, you know, my mom really found solace in Christianity, you know, the, you know, the doctrine of absolute love and how, you know, and, and I think Christianity has a very, a lot of beautiful elements to it, to his idea of, you know, unconditional love, uh, community and stuff like that. So like, you know, when I was a child looking out, I, I also went to, um, this really, this church, it's actually, it's very, Okinawa has a very unique, uh, history of Christianity. So when the Americans started occupying Okinawa, they had a bunch of missionaries, Catholic missionaries specifically had more influence in Okinawa. Um, so a long time, a lot of Okinawans are Catholic, but especially starting in the 70s and 80s, a lot of black soldiers really resonated with the Okinawan people. Kind of, They they shared the same experience of oppression and marginalization. So actually a lot of the churches in Okinawa are like kind of like black church, American black churches. So like I remember my wow. pastor was, um, was an African-American man who was married to an indigenous woman. And they, were, they kind of merged like indigenous like like music and dance and culture with like you know like mm-hmm. with uh, black gospel uh, black theology yeah. right so it's really it was really unique yeah that's incredible that is, that is really fascinating especially because like that um like i i grew up as a christian but it, it's there's a lot of subsets of southern christianity <laughs> um and the subset that i was in was was not the same as, as what you're talking about um and i remember that being a, a, pl- a place of conflict where we would have a, a lot of black members of our church actually leave the church um because they felt underserved and uh, like there was there was nothing to connect to it wasn't like what they'd grown up in um i think i think it's important to to see that and and to acknowledge like the cultural differences that there are even within one religion that's really mm-hmm. fascinating Absolutely. for sure 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I, I, recently we 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 brought up Islam too, and like that's actually like a like I guess I identify as like an open mind atheist, but I also find like a lot of beauty and inspiration from Islam, which um mm-hmm. I think is underrepresented, understudied in America, and mm-hmm. especially like you know when you consider people like Malcolm X, you know it's this Islam is this idea that there is no higher authority than you know God, Allah, and that means that mm-hmm. you know no oppressor, no president, no king is above right. God. Right, it's this idea mm-hmm. that tahweed, right, the oneness of God, that through God you can overcome anything. You know, God will smash the oppressors, God, right? <laughs> and I find I, I find a lot of strength in that. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in Islam is this. You know, it's of course it's been abused by many people, but, but so is all religion. But so all religion, right? Yeah. And like you know, and um, but like I think really reading and watching and listening to Malcolm X has also kind of really got me curious about Islam, and I also. I feel like a lot of my like philosophical views are also influenced by Islamic philosophy and theology, and it's just, uh, I really resonate with the idea of jihad, which is a really which is a really misunderstood word in American culture. Jihad doesn't mean terrorism, right? Jihad means to struggle in the way of God, and mm. you know, in Islam, there's two major forms of jihad. So there's the greater jihad, which is you struggle with yourself, you struggle with your shortcomings, your sin, or whatever. Um, and there's the lesser jihad, which is you fight against an oppressive force, right? Wow. So we talk about we talk about like Al Qaeda or ISIS declaring jihad, but we never talk about you know Albanian Muslims declaring jihad against the Third Reich to protect their Jewish neighbors. You know, mm-hmm. you never hear about the many Palestinian same World War II, the many Palestinian Christians who declared jihad against the, the the Nazi Germany to protect their Jewish neighbors and stuff. So. Um, I, I, I find a lot of beauty in Islam. I think that's been underappreciated. Dude, that's sure. yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. To, to ha- sit there and have something like that, that, like you said, the greater jihad with the personal struggle. Um, mm-hmm. I, I grew up Southern Baptist, so we didn't really talk much about anyone's personal struggles. Like yeah. everyone had their <laughs> sin that they were dealing with, but right. like mm-hmm. you weren't supposed to talk about it it wasn't something you were supposed mm-hmm. to really think about you're just supposed to pray and everything's supposed to go away which yeah that's mm-hmm. you know southern baptist for you but i think mm-hmm. that's beautiful because mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i myself go through a lot of internal struggle all the mm-hmm. time and yeah. to just know that that's like really represented somewhere uh is yeah. awesome yeah i think especially in america there's a, a a heavy amount of of fear surrounding difference and, and surrounding religion that we have mm-hmm. I, th- I think for, for, for most Americans heard about for the first time in a, in a very bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's hard, I think, um, for people to realize that things might not be the way they had thought, mm-hmm. um, for, for things to be perhaps more open or, or better, and that mm-hmm. there can be a few bad actors in something that, that does not represent the entirety mm-hmm. of the whole. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage people to, especially like, um, in my, my year, this this year of being a like an official religion major, there's so much that I've learned <laughs> that is not what I was told, yep. mm-hmm. and it'll it'll kind of break your brain for a little mm-hmm. bit to go like, oh wow, that's something I'd accepted as a truth, mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. I'm reading these you know ten peer reviewed scholarly articles that are telling me that that truth is not a truth, <laughs> right? Um, and Absolutely. I have to accept those a little bit more mm-hmm. than you know the the pastor at the church I went to a, to as a kid who went to a two year seminary college, yeah. Like, it, it definitely changes your perspective. Um, and th- that's true of many things, I think. This brings up a really interesting point that I find with a lot of, especially older people in America, 
is just that they were raised through our school systems and through our churches and like taught this very specific view. And mm-hmm. so that's, it's not only like their beliefs, but it's their reality. It's, right. it's the yeah. truth to them. And mm-hmm. so that's something I have to realize when I'm talking to my family and mm-hmm. trying to get to a place of understanding is that, mm-hmm. and scientifically, like if, you have a truth like that that you've lived with your whole life for that to just be turned on its head or for you to have to deny that it's like mm-hmm. traumatic in a sense to them which you know it's very difficult it's very difficult and yeah. so it's something that yeah. they can't do like even my grandmother i was talking to her over thanksgiving and like she's just now she said this and it's good because she's making progress which is amazing mm-hmm. but she was just like you know i don't know that we treated the native americans that well and I'm like, no, no, Grandma, we didn't. In fact, Columbus was a bad person. And she wouldn't budge on that. She was like, no, Columbus was a good man. Oh my God. And I was like, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and no. it's just because yeah. they weren't taught that. They were taught Columbus yeah. came here, had Thanksgiving with the Indians, and America was born. One uh, cool, cool historical fact about that, about learning um, this kind of different version of history um, boils down to this group called the Daughters of the Confederacy, who yes. uh, yeah. in the South, after mm. the uh, Confederates lost, they were like, hmm, I'm worried that yeah. the government is going to write these uh, historical books that will say that we were bad people. And so they all band together and they write the history textbooks. Mm-hmm. And then they basically bullied all the school systems into using them. Um, I'm not making this up. Yeah. Please go look up the Daughters yeah. of the Confederacy. Yeah. And, and not to mention that um, a lot of these Confederate monuments weren't built even near after the Civil War, they're they're built mm-hmm. during the height of the Civil Rights Movement to scare yeah, long um, after. Um, like African American activists from coming to these towns and saying, "Hey, you know, we are humans too." Um, yeah, and the, yeah, and it's yeah, it's very it's very disappointing. Um, yeah, what what part you learn as a as a child will impact your life for a very long time, and it's hard to unlearn right. what you learned as a very young child. Yeah. Especially when it's what you learn from school, which is what we are taught to trust as our educational resource. Um, yeah. And so especially in, in the South, um, a lot of the textbooks that were used are blatantly incorrect. And we know that. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to change the mindset of someone who's been taught something since age four or five, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. For sure. Mm-hmm. I think kind of going off what Dakota said, like like culture, relig- specifically religion, as like a way to kind of see the world, see reality. I think to also use that to answer George's question about how like Okinawans see the, cause I can describe like the, the gods or like the rituals, the ceremonies, but you don't understand until you understand like how the world is viewed right from yeah. like an indigenous region perspective. And it's this idea that, you know, everything we all come from the same place and we all go back to that same place. Right. And it has a more of like an ancestral, um, connotation to it so you know we we Ryukians believe we, we come from like the womb of the world or you know we're born like from the womb of our mothers into this world mm-hmm. so and actually when when one of our family one of our munchu is the word but when someone from our clan dies we mm-hmm. um uh, cremate them and we put them into this very kind of big um house almost that's shaped like a womb and wow. each clan kind of has their own but it, it Recently, I mean, it depends on your socioeconomic standing, too, because, you know, some people can only afford small kind of like, um, you know, brick houses, I guess, to put it in. But uh, my family's a little bit 
better off, I guess, financially. So we have like a normal sized one and it symbolizes like when we die, we return to like the womb and we return to like, so our souls, it's a 33 year journey for our soul, individual souls to become one with the ancestor's soul. So it just, it's kind of, it's like a, you know, there's like a droplet of water and then when it drops into the ocean, it becomes one with the ocean. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. that idea that, um, it's very community focused and that that 33 year journey to the afterlife when you die um the living your living family needs to come every year every month whatever to make offerings to pray to burn incense and stuff um so yeah i think to kind of go back to answer george's question that's kind of how maybe a little bit different from at least american christianity where it's kind of um through jesus Mm -hmm. is how you kind of get to the afterlife whereas in um Mm -hmm indigenous recuing culture it's it's the community it's your family yeah. right without wow. that you can't make it to um the afterlife you know you need yeah. the community support so that's oh that's beautiful i love yeah. that idea mm-hmm. like like that mm-hmm. oh yeah. that's awesome yeah yeah you describe yourself as an open-minded atheist do you mm-hmm. resonate with that uh kind of idea of the afterlife is that something yeah. you believe in so <laughs> well i was talking to my aunt kind of like she's the same way she's not like particularly religious like she doesn't really believe in an afterlife but she's like but like the cool thing about like you know okinawan religion is that you don't have to believe in it to be true <laughs> you don't have to believe in it to, yes, to, yeah, for it yeah. to be true you know what that's, i mean oh that's the yeah. scariest part about christianity it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's you not better the either or it. it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you don't believe you do in it you're not gonna go there but yeah wow that's a really beautiful perspective yeah so like when my when, when my mom you know, talks to my grandma about like her Christian views. My grandma's like very traditional indigenous practicer. She's like, well, my mom's, my mom's like anxious about my mom, obviously, because she wants her to be a Christian and go to heaven. And my grandma's like, well, I mean, it'd be great if you were like following our customs, but I guess it doesn't matter because if, if you're a Christian, you die, then you're still going to reunite with the ants. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. it's a complete, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a complete different attitude. It takes a lot of pressure off of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so I yeah, so like if I tell my like if I if I told like my you know American family I'm an atheist, they'd be like, no 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 like you know you gotta be Christian like we gotta save you. If I told my like Okinawan family, they're like, oh okay whatever, <laughs> like yeah, we'll still see you in the There's yeah still see in the afterlife yeah. So wow, that's yeah. a really interesting cultural difference. Yeah, I I think that's just so much better. Any mm-hmm. religion that tries to scare you into believing it just seems like mm-hmm. I don't know that makes the argument at least in my eyes so much less valid. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense. And I, mm. personally, my own views on it, I don't think Jesus really, like, in the actual translations of, like, when he talks mm-hmm. about hell and stuff in mm-hmm. the Bible, he's talking about a furnace outside of a town that he was preaching in. <laughs> he was like, both rich and poor people will go here. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Treat people nice, guys. Mm-hmm. And it's just like. Oh, there's a hell. Oh, he said it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he said yeah. fire. You're yeah. going to burn. Yeah, yeah. There's so, yeah, many, yeah. so many translational differences. Yeah. Well, I, Matthew, I, I want to um, kind, of, kind of hone in on our last few questions mm-hmm. here. And you talked a lot about um, these strong like beliefs that you hold and mm-hmm. all these ideas that you have, whether they're, they're cultural or spiritual or political or all these different these elements. Um, but to kind of boil it down to you, what is the meaning of life? Uh, you can never prepare for that question, can you? No matter how hard you, try. you really can't. Nope. Yeah. There's two ways to answer that question. <laughs> so I awesome. think in a, on an individual level, the meaning of life is, I know this is so cliche. I mean, you can find it on any t-shirt at Hot Topic is, you know, the meaning of life is what you make it, right? Mm. Um, mm. 
what what values you set out for yourself, what goals you set out for yourself. Um, because when we're born in this world, I mean, we're kind of born in like a sandbox game, right? I mean, there is yeah. no like direct direct course of action. I mean, we can have influences from our culture and our society and our economic structures, but at the end of the day, we, we do have a large degree of freedom that we're given. Um, I think the second way to answer that question, I think from a more social per- perspective, or I think I think when people are asked like what the meaning of life is, they only consider like what the individual meaning of life is, and maybe less so like the social meaning of life. Um, oh, that's interesting. There's a biological way to answer that question is to you know to reproduce humanity, right? <laughs> but yeah. that's that, that's a little bit boring. Um, <laughs> because of my political views, I say that you know the meaning of life on a social level is to just continue to better our situation, right? It, to very mm-hmm. put it very vaguely, to um, try to overcome our circumstances together as one humanity, mm-hmm. to have the realization that we create, you know, we we. You know, we humans owe ourselves a lot to the environment, of course, and to what Mother Nature has provided us. But also, um, we are influenced by the how we create our create our institutions, create our economic structures, create our communities, and it's that sense of interacting that I think you can find meaning in life. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I lo- I, I've never had anybody answer that question from the collective perspective mm-hmm. instead yeah. of like from from the individual. That's really cool. That's amazing, mm-hmm. man. Um, yeah, and. For our last question, it's always the mm-hmm. same. It's always so good, and I love it. Like yeah. these last two, we always do. But yeah, you've given mm-hmm. us a lot of insight tonight and a lot of things to think about. But mm-hmm. we just want to know what is the best advice you have ever received. Probably, honestly, probably from my my grandfather, um, who has a lot of influence on me. Um, my 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 maternal grandfather, and he was um. People always say we have like very similar personality issues. Um, you know, he, he died of cancer a few years ago, um, but he, he's, you know, I, I didn't get to see him die because he was in Okinawa, but, you know, he's he always told me to just fight and fight and fight, you know, and just to not give up because um, he, he had a rough childhood himself and he overcame a lot. And I kind of hold on to that attitude and I try to be polite, you know, I try, I try to be diplomatic, <laughs> but at, at the end of the day, if it boils down to it, it's about sticking to my principles, about sticking to what i believe is right and if anyone gets in my way then they're gonna be in for a bad time <laughs> <laughs> awesome yeah oh that's beautiful yeah. man yeah yeah mm-hmm. fight for what you believe in that's really cool yeah matt thank you so much for coming on the yeah. podcast like, this fun. Yeah, thank you for joining us incredible. this has been a delight yeah thank you i had a lot of fun yeah sure. awesome um well this is this has been wonderful and our lovely listeners thank you so much for tuning in and we'll uh see you next week see you next week guys uh in the meantime just Drink some coffee, I guess. Bye, guys. (laughs)